Hey, Finders. I did not expect this podcast to happen so soon. <laughs> I had like an idea of how I wanted to build out this subscription on Substack, what the launch week would look like. And I was debating, what did I want to write my third piece on? So I had my intro piece. I had the big manifesto about the NBA's referee operations and how that's so many conflicts of interest 15 years after Tim Donnie. So if you haven't read those two, go read them. And I was like, what am I going to do my third piece on? And then boom, ESPN announces that it is partnering with a sports book and plans to open up ESPN bet in a few months. And this obviously is huge news, not just because I used to work at ESPN and not just because there's the whole barstool and Dave Portnoy aspect to it and how juicy of a headline this is that out goes barstool and in comes ESPN. ESPN, remember a few years ago, was about to air a barstool TV show and then pulled the plug at the last minute. So there's so much drama there. We're not going to get too much into that here on this pod. But I wanted to fire up something of an emergency podcast with two of my buddies in the industry, in the sports biz, who just so happened to go by Ben. <laughs> I apologize for that. The awkward, hey, Ben, I got a question for you. And then both of them answer. The first Ben is Ben Fox, who used to run digital content for ESPN Sports Betting Desk. We used to be colleagues at ESPN back in the day. And he also ran betting content at VEASAN out in Vegas. And then there's my other Ben buddy. That's Ben Aronson, who has loads of experience as a media and marketing executive in the sports world, who knows so much about the value of ad sales and this, the type of thing that this licensing fee that ESPN is getting $1.5 billion from Penn entertainment, if that's a good play at all. And what this means for, for ESPN, the product. So yeah, to get you up to speed, late afternoon, Tuesday, news broke, ESPN partnering with Penn Entertainment, which used to be branded as Barstool Sportsbook, and Barstool Sportsbook is no longer. That's not a thing, and they're now like banned from doing any sportsbook content or gambling as part of the agreement for the foreseeable future. Barstool Sportsbook is now ESPN bet, thanks to this deal. ESPN gets that $1.5 billion over 10 years, which equates to about $150 million annually. My first thought was, man, this is going to put newsbreakers in a really tough spot. Like They have to be so careful now because of the conflicts of interest, the appearance of impropriety. The insider trading aspect of all this is so fascinating to me. Adam Schefter and Adrian Wojnarowski can move the betting markets with a single tweet. Now that a sports book is paying ESPN $1.5 billion, are there conflicts of interest here? Like do Woj and Shefty or whomever at ESPN now breaking news or thinking about breaking news, do they have to loop in the bookmakers at Penn before they tweet this out, before they file it in an email to the news desk? Do they have to get multiple sourcing to make sure that those betting lines are accurate? I don't know. As far as we can tell in the reporting, Penn is going to have zero, zero influence on the editorial side or the content side. They are just using that branding, that ESPN red lettering, and they're licensing that brand on their sports book, much in the same way that they did with Barstool. And since I've been on those studio sets and how crazy they can be, and I've been in those newsrooms, I've been in those email threads. This is where my mind immediately goes. This sort of editorial conundrum where insider trading can rear its ugly head because these newsbreakers have a lot of information. And to me, it made me think about the Woj bomb of the summer. The fact that Adrian decided to stop Woj bombing the NBA draft. That was like a month ago. And to me, this was like finding out LeBron James announced he wasn't going to pass the ball anymore. This is what Woj does. This is Woj at his best is like, screw the NBA, screw ESPN. I have a job to do. I'm going to break this news. And when the news comes in that Paolo Bancaro is going number one overall, or this trade is happening, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to break the news. My duty is to break the news. And this is the same guy who once called the NBA draft a ceremony telling the New York times, I think this was back in 2015. I don't care about anybody's ceremony. I don't wait for things to be announced. I would never accept any edict not to report the news end quote. 
So why, after five years of sticking it to the NBA and his employer, was Adrian now having a change of heart and accepting that edict that he swore would never be the case? And the most obvious answer was that he misfired last year. He tweeted out on the morning of the draft last year that the one, two, three of the NBA draft is increasingly firm. Jabari to Orlando, Chet Holmgren to OKC, and Bancaro to Houston. Paolo Bancaro went number one, obviously, and Adrian had to clean up some of his reporting later in the day. Maybe things changed and he was getting real-time information and accurate all the way through. The reason why this is a big deal is because Adrian is almost never wrong. So maybe him not doing the draft last June is him licking his wounds and deciding, hey, I'm just going to take the year off and I'm going to sit this out and let Shams do his thing or let other guys break the news. I don't think that's likely after following his work for so long. I just don't think that's his DNA. And so in light of Tuesday's news, I kind of think this other factor might be at play. Gambling. Maybe ESPN bet negotiations played some sort of role in that decision to not break all the tweets or break all the picks on NBA draft night. And we know that Shams Charania, if you've been following along, he caught some flack and headlines for his scoot tweet at number two, saying that there was serious momentum gaining for the Charlotte Hornets at number two to draft scoot Henderson. And the fact that Shams Charania has a fan duel partnership, but let's be clear here. Adrian did the same thing at the top of the draft last year, the Paolo Bancaro year. And that too just completely blew up the betting markets, swaying side to side. Who's the favorite? This line is now turned, flipped from favorite to underdog. All that happened last year with the Paolo Bancaro draft. The difference is obviously that Adrian was not affiliated with a sports book last year. And that changes now. So my question did Jimmy Pitaro or some other powerful person finally put their thumb in the scale and say, hey, look, Adrian, let's just not tweet out this year. Can we just not? We're in negotiations with a sports book. We're trying to figure out this thing in an Intel-based bet. Let's just sit this out. So I'll ask the Bens what they think about that. And actually, surprised to learn, I, I was missing a different reason why Shams or Shefty or Woj may have decided not to tip the picks anymore. So let's get into it. Without further ado, this is the first podcast of The Finder. With the two Bens, Ben Fox, the sports betting guru, and Ben Aronson, the sports marketing guru. Welcome to the Finder. I'm Tom Haverstrow. Welcome to the Finder. Welcome to the Finder. I'm Tom Haverstrow. Fox, so when I saw this news come across my timeline, I had a zillion thoughts, but one of the first people I wanted to talk to was you because. We used to work together at ESPN. You know Vegas inside and out. Uh, you know the business plays um, around this industry. And you've probably been tracking, you know, what, where FanDuel or DraftKings or Caesars or all these different sports books, MGM, um, and where ESPN might play into all of this. And last fall, I think uh, either the Disney CEO or a spokesperson for, for Disney came out and said that, yeah, they're looking to partner with somebody. Um, they're not going to actually open up their own sports book and start taking bets internally, but doing a brand partnership or a licensing deal, they've been on the market for a, quite a long time. And Tuesday's news was, to me, a, out of nowhere. Uh, I did not think that Penn um, was going to be a major player here, but they divest their relationship with Barstool and they are now partnered with ESPN in a licensing deal over the next 10 years, uh, $1.5 billion they're paying ESPN over the length of that deal. And this has really shook up the industry. And I'm wondering how, Ben uh, Fox, how, how did it land with you? Well, I was, I was telling you before the podcast, first, you know, the challenges of a reporter. I, I'm on Twitter and TweetDeck many, many hours a day, especially leading up to football. I leave to go get lunch for 10 minutes where I'm not on my phone, not on my computer. And of course, this breaks. I come back. My wife says, did you hear about the ESPN deal? I go, what are you talking about? Um, this is something we've been waiting for for a long time. I think there's really kind of, you know, multiple big players in the market. You obviously have DraftKings, FanDuel, Caesars, BetMGM and others. But really, people have been waiting to see, one, what is ESPN going to do? kind of in the sports betting space at large. 
and two, fanatics, right? And those two have kind of been, I don't want to say lurking, but they've been out there and people have known something is going to happen. It just was kind of what exactly is it going to be? Who potentially are they going to partner with? What is it going to look like? I think you'd mentioned last fall there was uh, something, you know, mentioned and floated that maybe ESPN would be partnering with DraftKings. Obviously, that didn't come to fruition. And here we are with the, you know, pen, the pen deal and Barstool Sportsbook no longer a thing. And there, there's so many different kind of legs to this. I think the first thing for me was just reading a ton and understanding or trying to understand exactly what this deal is and kind of what it entails. Because as you know, with ESPN, there are so many different kind of layers and tentacles and ways that it goes out in terms of sports leagues and insiders. And now you have betting odds and there's a sports book, but they're not running the sports book. It's a licensing deal. So there's just kind of so many things that I'm sure we'll get into. But that was my first takeaway was kind of one, wow, it actually was pen on your radar move. And then two, what exactly is this deal? How long is it? What does it entail? Stuff like that. Was was Penn on your radar? They weren't only because they were in a deal with Barstool. I, I think they were kind of a dark horse because of everything that happened with the uh, Mincy stuff. And you just saw that um, Barstool, I think, as you know, has come out, it's tougher to work under that regulated market, right? There are benefits to that, which is that someone is paying you a lot of money for the company. And the trade-off is that there are certain guardrails you have to, you know, withstand and, and go between to maintain those licenses in certain states and have Penn operate. And Barstool is probably going to be a brand that's going to push to the limit and sometimes over the limit of those guardrails. And obviously, a parent company has to be comfortable with that. And Penn probably was for a while. And at a certain point, they weren't. Uh, I don't think the Barstool Sportsbook has had a ton of market share in the states that they've been in as well. And so it probably just kind of made sense to go a different direction and you know, we'd known ESPN was talking to a bunch of different companies. They were always going to do something. It was just a question of, you know, it, it's to a certain extent a game of musical chairs and someone's going to be left without a chair. And, you know, ESPN was not going to be left without a chair, but there, there were fewer and fewer chairs available. You know, I'm curious, you know, when you think about this deal, the, the thing that I think about is we enter into media deals as a brand, right? So I'm speaking as Penn, right? For a second, we enter into a media deal for exposure and growth, right? And there's like calculations you can give to how many people you reach and how frequently you reach them and how that will drive your business, right? And so what is really interesting to me though is DraftKings and FanDuel went big on advertising early, right? And went in the traditional route and then slowly built their way through sponsorships. And Penn, with Barstool and now with ESPN, is entering this space in the form of partnership, ownership, you know, collaboration. And I'm curious, Ben, from your perspective, how does that differ in operations, right? How does that make for, you know, the relationship of these two brands when, you know, ESPN is a, is a license holder of sports, right? Like they, they, they are an important, and, and you know, I, I, I do want to dive into kind of the business economics and announcing this all before the earnings call, but I'm just fascinated and I want to make sure I learn from an expert who's been in, in these rooms <laughs> before I get into it. You know, how do you see that being different? Like DraftKings sponsoring a segment on, you know, uh, on NFL Live versus Penn being like the exclusive partner? It's a great question. I don't know if I have a, a great answer necessarily to it. I think, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to skin a cat. Ultimately, the, the biggest thing, and I think we've seen some of that so far in the sports betting kind of with legalization from 2018 on, is you have to have a great product, right? And I think that's, the, that's really the biggest thing 
Um, there was, I think, a thought early on in legalization that the biggest brands would win, right? And certain brands, casino brands you've heard of, well, now New Jersey has legal sports betting, right? And so I've heard of a certain casino, I'm going to go bet there. Well, their mobile app was terrible, right? And DraftKings, mm. FanDuel, and others, their app was terrific, plus all this advertising. All of a sudden, it didn't matter that you hadn't heard of them and you heard of some of these other casino brands, you're going to go to the one that has the better experience. And so I think it's ultimately just getting eyeballs on your app. And then that's kind of the, the top of the funnel. And once you're there, you have to get people to want to to want to sign up. There's been all the kind of promos as well and things, which we can certainly debate, you know, the economics of that and whether or not kind of it's sticky for consumers or they're just, hey, I'm betting, I'm taking this $500 promo and I'm taking this $1,000 promo and then I'm playing through and then I'm out, um, you know, versus actually sticking around because they're learning something, they're winning money or they really enjoy you know, kind of the UI and UX experience of those apps. So I don't know if that necessarily answers your your question. There, there are two different ways yes. to go, basically. I think it's always, it, it's just a large, large sum of money, right, for a licensing deal. Well, that's actually an interesting piece, and Tom and I were talking about it. And the more you think about it, $150 million a year is actually not that big of big amount of money. And the reason I say that is like, you know, the the last college game day deal that Home Depot did a while back was in the $30 million a year range, right? And that's an important thing to think about. That is like one show, one program, right? And that's $30 million. And that doesn't even include all the TV revenue, TV ads that they that they run behind that. That's the sponsorship. And so the ironic thing was when when Tom and I were talking this morning, at first, I got trapped by the same thing everybody else does. The headline, 1.5 billion. Yeah. And then when you divide it out, you're like, it's only 150 million a year as like the base pay. And this is where me as a business person, having worked with publicly traded companies, et cetera, goes there. They announced this two days, three days before their earnings call. Did they rush to get a deal done and maybe leave a lot of money on the table? to just get out ahead of this earnings call, which by all accounts is not going to be nearly as impressive as uh, Bob Iger's uh, previous um, earnings calls with, with this company. Yeah, I didn't know about the earnings call piece until you brought that up. I was like, wait, maybe that's why this, like Portnoy does the emergency podca uh, podcast, like press conference on his Twitter account. And it all seemed just to happen like that. Like it happened overnight or even in one day, just they all got on the phone. Uh, whether Portnoy had them over a barrel because Penn couldn't do the deal with Disney and ESPN unless they divested the barstool piece and he got it back for $0 or whatever whatever it was. It almost felt political, Ben, uh, both Bens, uh, how you listen to one side of, of social media and this is a huge win for Portnoy and barstool. The other side is like, wow, ESPN struck a deal with Penn, has a sports book operating already in 16 states. Uh, what a steal. Um, they got $1.5 billion just to use their name and then they get a sports book. It was, uh, it seemed to happen so fast. And that earnings call and being on CNBC right before the earnings call going out to investors, it seems like that had a lot to do with this deal getting placed. Is, am, I, am I wrong, Fox? Is that your read? Did you, did you notice that the whole earnings call piece of this when the news dropped yesterday? So, I mean, I will, I will say that I was not aware that they had the earnings call, right? I'm, you're always kind of, you know, obviously they come around a couple times a, a year and you're always seeing what they're responding to, but I'm not necessarily listening on every earnings call of, you know, uh, all of these different companies. Right. I would not be shocked if there was some obviously kind of deliberate of when the deal was announced um, and all of that. So I think none of these deals, as you know, with ESPN are happening in two hours, right? These have been talked about for a long period of time, debated. 
you know, I'm guessing that there were certain things in motion. And then once Bob Iger came back, I'm, I'm sure certain things were put on pause and let's make sure it comes across my desk and another eye was given to it. So, you know, if, if I was guessing, I think that this was in the works for a long time. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how often it was just, Hey, we're going to drop this today. Maybe it was a happy coincidence. Maybe that's why they did it. But I don't think uh, a deal just came together in, you know, 10 hours or <laughs> two well, hours what I, what or anything will, like that. What I will give you guys a little insight to, and, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to say this in like a condescending way, but having sat in the rooms um, with companies as they are preparing for earnings calls in the, so they happen four times a year. Right. And it's basically to report out prior quarters results mm-hmm. and project forward the rest of the year and future year strategy. And basically what typically happens is um, as companies prepare for what are usually lackluster earnings calls, they get together to try to speed up decisions. Right to try to find ways that they are going to signal to the market, as Tom said in our conversation earlier today, don't bail on this stock yet, right? And so I agree that there were definitely conversations happening. This is not something that comes out of nowhere in, in a week. Yeah. But where I have seen this stuff across all the companies I've worked with for 20 years is this is something that might have been on a timetable to, to do by end of August, end of September, and the timetable gets sped up because they're trying to offset other news. And if you like look at like the Disney stock ticker, right, for the past three months, they're down 15%. Year to date, you know, they're rather flat, um, but they, they, were, they were up 25% as recently as February, right? And so that to me, combined with all the news around their repositioning of Marvel and not being sure about what's happening with subs and, you know, supposedly, you know, cord cutting is down to like 65 million um, cable subscribers now. Um, I think this was a bit of a rush deal. And I personally think they left some money on the table. Now, the piece that we won't know for some time is what the equity side of this deal, which is currently valued at $500 million dollars what that looks like moving forward, that might be a, a, a good deal as somebody like Bob Iger um, is kind of laying the footprint in to potentially buy out, you know, a sports book and just wholly own it. Um, those are some like really interesting things that could happen down the road. But my gut is $150 million a year for basically the only true sports media entity at its scale I feel like they left money on the table and I feel like it was rushed to beat this earnings goal. So I'm, I'm looking at this story from sportsbettingdime.com. Is that a real, is that a, a reputable place, Fox? Like I can read yeah. this and feel like it's credible information. They've been around for a while. Okay. Thank you. Um, I got your seal of approval here. So like bar, they're saying that Barstool sportsbooks struggle to gain traction and difficulty competing with top sports betting operators um, like DraftKings, BetMGM, Caesars. Uh, during Ohio's sports betting launch this past January, Barstool Sportsbook claimed about a 4.5% market share, while FanDuel and DraftKings claimed about 45 and 31%, respectively. I mean, 5% of the market share, they can't be happy about that growth. They They want a much bigger share of that, and ESPN is potentially going to help them get more eyeballs, more people into their product. And as it was described to me, described to me on the past 24 hours is like the average barstool customer is very different, both in age and in wealth than the average ESPN customer. And that really matters. That really matters is not just, oh, this is a sports media entity, barstool versus ESPN. It's who the audience is. And so I'm wondering, um, as a sports betting expert, like, why does it matter that one market is young and uh, probably low income? I'm guessing Barstool's audience is more like college kids or just out of college. 
um, and skews much younger than ESPN's audience. Whereas ESPN's audience feels like when, when progressive insurance is your, when state farm insurance is your lead ad buy uh, or bat partner, it tells me a little bit about who you're advertising to, right, Ben? So how, from the betting side, why is that important? And, and Aronson, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just marketing wise, why ESPN makes more, may, might make more sense to Penn than Barstool. Yeah, I mean, the first thing, right, is as much as, uh, you know, there are, are, I think, legitimate concerns about the cable bundle and declining and, you know, not saying anything new about ESPN's um, kind of economic situation. It's ESPN, right? It is a massive, massive property. It's a massive amount of eyeballs. And it also has, you know, ESPN Plus, which is really kind of a gambling destination, right? If you're anything is on in a sports book, it's probably, you know, there's a, probably a 40% chance it's on ESPN plus, whether it's some is that, college is that lacrosse right? yeah. game or a yeah. premier league soccer game or a college basketball game or Ivy, Slam you know, ball. there's all these things, right. That, that are, are there. Um, so a, a ton of people are watching. I don't know that they've, quite figured out exactly what to do with ESPN Plus. As you know, that was merged kind of with ESPN Insider from back when we were working on it. Yeah, I think when we found with Insider, there were generally three things that were the most popular for people to buy, right? One was fantasy articles, one was betting articles, and one was draft, right? NBA draft, NFL draft, mock drafts, etc. Those are the three biggest kind of areas and so you know that people are willing to pay for betting content, which generally means that they have a little disposable income, because obviously, if you're paying a certain amount for betting content and insider is very affordable, you then have to win more to also justify paying for that. Right. For that you're, content. Ante- you're anteing up, you're paying the ante for whatever insider is these days. Right. Um, so presumably, it's also helping you. But I think in general, the audience is a little older, skews a little wealthier. You know, and ultimately as well, it is something I've always found interesting. And one of the things I was curious would happen kind of with Barstool Sportsbook and others, right, is no matter how much you like personality X, personality Y, with sports betting, there is always money involved. And so you can love the personality. If they're giving out losing picks, you're going to be losing money in, if you already don't have as much money potentially to begin with. And like you said, potentially an audience that skews younger, maybe an audience that can't legally gamble yet, but will be able to in a couple of years. So they're not realizing all of that potential today that they might have in three years if some of the audience is, uh, you know, is under 21. I think there's just a lot of potential advantages that ESPN would have, as well as they already have kind of done some of the legwork in terms of I think some of the things that are in this deal, like in the app, right, having certain little advertisements, uh, deep links for a sports book, markets you can go into, that stuff they did with Caesars in the last kind of advertising deal. So it's already built in, I would think, to kind of the app technology. I don't know how easy it is to flip, right, from Caesars to Penn or ESPN Bet, but I don't think it's that difficult. They kind of already have probably done a lot of the legwork they have that in place. Now they already have kind of that technology. So it should be easier to switch to kind of the second advertising partner than it was to get into the first one as well. So a few things that you touched on there, right? I'll start with the last and work backwards. Just for everybody's awareness, like switching out um, creative basically and link is is like easy. They, they, they flip that over on, on a daily basis. And to be honest, not everybody, even the same ad unit, not everybody who opens the app is getting the same ad unit. It right. is tailoring what that is based on your, yeah, it's personalized based on your behaviors, your interests, et cetera. So that part is, is easy. There is a tech component that will be really interesting as this partnership goes along, which is how deeply does ESPN integrate the sports book into its functionality, right? When you start talking about can I view upcoming games and just place a bet within the ESPN app or does it keep forcing me to link out? Right. That's like, that's like one of the big things in just tech design, right? How, 
how much more um, native can you build these things? You don't want friction because um, then they'll be like, uh, I'm going to my trust, my other trusted app. I don't, I don't, I want to stay here and watch the game. Yeah, exactly. Like even just something as, as minuscule as if you look at the way ESPN runs its soccer, if you're inside the app and you go to open up like a story on soccer, it actually opens up a mobile web page, right? It does like a pop-up within the app because they haven't embedded all of their international media actually inside of the app. And sometimes it loads with a blank screen. You've got to un- down click, open it back up, right? Yes, that, the NFC is actually on a different CMS. Yes, just to, uh, exactly. <laughs> go inside and, baseball. <laughs> so for news stories, that just cost them pennies on advertising, right? On, on a CPM basis. For betting, if I drop off and don't click through or that experience is bad and I don't place that bet, they're losing dollars, right? On every person, on every bet. So figuring out how they integrate that, and if they do, and we can talk about the legal legalities and challenges of that, that, that's something that is separate. But if they can unlock that, that is a huge win for revenue, right? For both Penn and ESPN. But to go to your first point about audience, let's not forget FanDuel and DraftKings achieve their market share largely on the back of advertising on ESPN and then advertising on live sports. That's right. right? And so those companies, as far as where we're aware of in society, they didn't exist 10 years ago, right? There's actually no reason that MGM, like the second, I believe it's the second largest gaming company in the world. They're third. I mean, they are enormous should be behind these tech movers, but they were, because of what you said, an absolutely app experience. Well, also, wasn't it Daily Fantasy? I guess it's just the same thing as that they were advertising on ESPN with Daily Fantasy. Fox, is they, that right? They were, but that's exactly it. They built their user base on something which actually didn't have nearly the adoption of play that, that people made it out to be. DraftKings and FanDuel were always angling for this sports gambling thing because uh, Chad Millman, who was on Rosillo's podcast, um, brought this up. I can't remember the exact number, but it was like more than two thirds of the bets on all sports books are made by people who are like super casuals who don't really know anything. They're like literally putting down 20 bucks for just the fun of it. That's way less effort than like having to pick a daily fantasy team. There's just like a lot of work that goes into that, right? And thinking about it and playing. So Disney still has massive scale, right? ESPN is still by 4X the largest sports media company in the world. They're they're like four to five X bigger in every average viewing number than Fox Sports and NBC Sports, et cetera. Um, Their direct-to-consumer business is small but growing. Don't let that 25 million people who subscribe to the bundle number fool you. Like the actual number is, is more like four to seven million people who are like ESPN plus focused subscribers, like people enter the app, but that's going to grow. There is scale here to grow a business. By mere default, my guess is Penn should be able to grow by, you know, I would say 200% over the first three years of this deal, just by the, the, the science of reach frequency, advertising and growth, as long as their app is not atrocious. And, and Fox, I, I would have to leave it to you to, to tell me their app experience versus the competitor's. But the thing that I still stand by is going to be really, really interesting to see how ESPN navigates this. Because to my knowledge, when I worked in the UK, while sports gambling has been far more advanced there than it is here, I've never seen a major media company who is a rights holder have this type of deep partnership with sports gambling before. And I, so Sky Sports doesn't have a, a sports book or something equivalent. I don't believe they have a sports book. I know they take advertising money, right? But I don't believe they have a sports book. Uh, I mean, Fox, you can correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but it, it wasn't it wasn't that way as recently as a couple of years ago. They're they're held up. I'm I'm not sure actually if they have a book. They're held up kind of as the gold standard of media deals as well with mm-hmm. sports books. I think the to your point though, what you're referring to is basically called bed and watch, right? And the ultimate goal at some point 
And I think one of the very large potential advantages ESPN has is what have they been doing over all these years? Acquiring rights for sports, right? The gold standard of a sports betting app is you're in the app and I'm watching an NFL game or another sport in the NFL. Obviously, rights very difficult. And I can also bet on the game in the same app, right? The, sc- the screen's up here. My betting's right here. I'm in the same app. I want to bet plus three. Boom, I just did it. Now I'm watching. Ah, all right, I want to take the others. Like, you're, you're in one app versus currently that really doesn't exist, right? Now, I have seen overseas uh, and people actually who VPNed in <laughs> in the U.S., mm-hmm. they, they can do this with like horse racing, right? Or some other mm-hmm. lower, some other other sports, but not the major leagues, uh, obviously baseball, NBA, hockey, NFL. There's latency issues. There's, there's a ton of potential issues as well. But yeah. that is kind of ultimately, I think, you know, the goal ESPN has the Super Bowl in a couple of years, right? Like there's there's a lot of potential mm. down the road for that. And I think that to your point, it is what else can you do that is different, that differentiates you from other sports books? And, and Tom, whether that's about- a market you're offering or something else, and the bet and watch is definitely down the line. That's not going to happen anytime soon, but that's one area they could go. But Tom, think about an article that you put out, right? Where um, a particular ref, right? Think about like where the Illuminati type stories come from, right? Which they're always rooted in a little bit of truth, right? And then we'll let your imagination take it from there. But if you write an article that says, this ref has this type of effect on games that Chris Paul plays in, or you put out an article that says, um, Tinder has actually helped NBA players not go out on the road as much, right? And therefore, the uh, advantage of away of home games is diminishing. You put out that article. You can now have betting lines to encourage you. Bet on this game with Chris Paul and this ref. Bet on this thing with away game Before, lines. Wasn't right? that in there, though? Like with their different partnerships that like they could put in like Caesars bet on this, but ne- it's not as... There's it's more not as, now it's not as automated, right? Whereas, and it's not as foundational to how you can churn out content. It's not that it was never done before, is that it wasn't core to what your business model is. So as you finish an article, right, your editor can go, or the tech, the tech partners can go, what bets should we insert yeah. into this article specifically based on what Tom wrote, right? And that, that, then breathes new life into the writing side, which is actually something that I find really interesting because you and I talk about how that is dying. ESPN has completely deflated everything that is written on their app. But this does bring new life to that because as of right now, it is still easier to create a clickable environment in literary static content than it is in video content. We do not click through on video ads, on video stuff, nearly at the rate we click through on static static ads. So mm-hmm. it does create this added dynamic. And then the last thing that I would say is when you talked about bet and watch, I went to a, um, a TNT uh, innovation meeting, walkthrough at their new studios in Hudson Yards like two years ago. And they were showing us all of the technology they were going to have rolling out in-game over the next five to six years, so that should be coming the next three to four, of the almost like sports science, the odds of a shot going in from the moment it leads somebody's hand, right? It using AI technology to be like, he was squared up. It's from this distance. He shoots all this and the odds going up. They were not putting it explicitly in there, but implicitly talking about, think about the gambling components of this. People being able to bet on their TV, on their phones, in real time on shots. Is this last second shot going to go in? It takes the concept of a live line to an exponentially um, more engaging. Right, so realm. a guy, uh, let's say the Lakers take a timeout with 30 seconds left and they're drawing up the play and you're watching on ABC or ESPN. Theoretically, on your TV or on your app, if you're watching or on your iPad, 
a little blur, a little bubble could pop up and say like, bet uh, plus one twenty that LeBron hits uh, hits a, a two pointer on this play, and you could just natively in the app bet on that. Fox, is that like? I mean, maybe not in the next two months, but is that is that what we're imagining here that this acquisition is making that a real a reality? Depends what you consider reality, I would say. But yes, I mean that. There are, that is what eventually I think people are going to attempt to go to. The issue with all these is latency, right? Is that essentially the game is happening in real time somewhere, let's say at Los Angeles. It's then being broadcast on TV with a certain delay. And then generally the feed that people are seeing has another delay on top of that. So when am I offering the odds? Who's getting what feed? Who's allowed to bet sooner now as well? Is that being offered in the stadium? Because in yeah. California, sports betting isn't legal mobily. But let's say it's in New York at a Knicks game. If I'm in the stadium, I'm going to be able to bet faster than someone who's at home because I'm actually literally watching the game happen. So there's a lot of potential. Oh, hurdles. man, I'm just thinking like John ja Morant turns his ankle in a game and I can in the stadium see that he's going to be out for the rest of the game. Can I go into my app right there and just be like, oh, I'm, I'm taking the opponent. Like, well, you I, can already do that. Right. You can do that. Yeah. I guess there's four NBA arenas, I believe, four NBA arenas that you can live bet at the stadium and there's a sports book in the arena. Um, but like what you're, what you're, uh, what you're getting into here is a kind of editorial. You brought up me like writing an article on, I mean, it could be even be why the nuggets are underrated. And then you just like, there's a little ad here, bet the nuggets tonight, right? That ESPN can do now p- potentially with this deal brings up editorial. Uh, Fox, you wrote a story last year detailing the draft night and how Paolo Bancaro going number one overall, how that impacted um, how how Adrian Wojnarowski at ESPN's reporting impacted the betting markets, and how on the night the morning of draft night last year, uh, Adrian had reported that it was going to go one Jabari Smith to Orlando, two Chet Holmgren to OKC, and three the Houston Rockets were going to take Paolo Bancaro, and that actually was wrong. Um, that later that night it turned out that Paolo Bancaro was going to uh, to Orlando. And you detailed like minute by minute talking to different um, sports book operators or, or bookmakers and people inside Vegas that were responding in real time. Like, this is what happened. It was crazy. I think you call it like the craziest draft night, the craziest 24 hours ahead of a draft night ever. Um, I immediately thought of that article when the news dropped yesterday because now Adam Schefter and Adrian Wojnarowski are going to have real impact on ESPN bet, right? By what news they report or the accuracy of that reporting. And those editorial decisions are super important now. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple, I feel like I'm using the word layers a lot, but a, a couple layers to it. I think... As I understand it, ESPN is upholding kind of what it has long said, right? Which is that it is not operating a sports book, right? And I think that is an important distinction in that this is kind of a licensing deal of the Penn sports book. Obviously, ESPN has a vested interest in the Penn sports book, now ESPN bet being successful, but they are not making money or losing money, depending on how successful, right? That That's not on their P&L, is whether or not the Pens, I don't think that the Pens well, Sportsbook... I mean, that's is, what $500 million of equity says, though, is that, now granted, they're not exercising those warrants today, but how much money Penn Sportsbook makes, makes that $500 million of equity worth something on their P&L or not? Yeah, that is, that is true. So it, but I it don't is, see a world in which I don't see a world, and maybe maybe I'm naive, but that Schefter gets word that the uh, the Titans are trading uh, uh, for for Patrick Mahomes. I'm just making some huge blockbuster deal. Uh, Derrick Henry to the Chiefs, and Pat Mahomes is going to to Titans. Shefty is not sending that over to Penn's bookmaker and saying like, Hey, I got this just now. 
Uh, just want to give you a heads up. That's not what this arrangement is. As far as I can tell in, in the, in the reports, ESPN is just set, licensing their brand. Um, but we just saw Shams Charania this past year in the, at the draft report that Brandon Miller, uh, even though he went number two later that night, he was reporting that there was a lot of momentum, gaining serious momentum that Scoot Henderson was going to go to Charlotte. And he caught a lot of flack publicly because he has a partnership with FanDuel and that he appears on a FanDuel TV show. But he's not, it's not FanDuel uh, is his only employer. Like Adrian Wojnarowski is employed by ESPN, the face of NBA coverage at ESPN. And I think it's a different ball game now. Like, Adrian, a couple years ago, got that number one pick wrong in the morning. And I think that scrutiny is going to be a lot more intensified now that they have ESPN bet than it was a week ago. It, it will definitely be intensified. I guess the only thing I would say is like every trading room in Vegas has TweetDeck. And every trading room in Vegas is following Schefter, Shams, Woj, and has lists of NFL beat reporters and, you know, certain bettors may get the information that much quicker, but all of, all of these places are following the same people. I think the larger point is that since sports betting wasn't widespread, you know, legalized before 2018, the general public wasn't following the changes in the odds that Schefter or Woj or these other people were having when they were doing these same tweets. Now there's just so much more scrutiny and so many more open potential markets as well. You know, NBA draft betting was not that big of a market. It still isn't that big of a market. It's more kind of sharps than public playing that. But the power that these reporters have, right, with millions and millions of followers to move lines they're not moving them for the benefit of a book, right? And I, I get that's how would Shams, you how would you move it for right. the benefit of a book? Can you like they're doing like, their reporting? Can you literally explain that, that how that would is work? then changing the odds or changing what people are betting on? Either it's changing what people are betting on based off the information they're tweeting, or the bookmakers are seeing it and saying, "Oh, we got to change our market because Shams or Woj or Schefter just said this," and they're reacting to the information. So. It's really just that the information now has a much more outsized impact in all of these betting markets that since it's legal and there's so many more books, we can see that impact. I, I think, Tom, your question about how they can move the market is. And now I let me start off by saying I agree with you. I don't believe there's any world in the near future where this happens as business operations. What can happen is like anything, there can be some bad actors who, 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 you know, penetrate things. But as a base way of operating, if you think about it like this, um, let's take it out of the in-game, in-short-term, in-draft, those momentary things. John Morant posts that video on Instagram, all right? There's a, an announcement from Adam Silver that the, the league is looking into it. The sooner you know what that suspension looks like, the yeah, greater advantage you have on betting on games. Memphis yeah. for the remainder of the season, both as individual games, as over-unders for the remainder, playoff position, et cetera. There's probably, and I'm not even I'm, I'm not even a sports better, but there's probably 20 bets that can move the moment you know that information. So when Woj or Shams knows that information, and when they decide to report it out, is where there is room for things to change. Um, now, in theory, I, again, I still don't believe this would happen, but if Penn were taking a ton of action that would imply, you know, John Morant is going to get suspended for a season, right? And, and people are just being super over-the-top pessimistic about it. They, they could decide to run that story. Hey, let's... Don't push this story. Just wait, wait another day or two. Let's get in all this dumb money on the idea that he's going to miss a season, right? Now, I don't think any of that stuff would realistically happen, but that is how it could move things. Likewise, they could announce, they could have a, if Woj were to come out right away and say, I don't expect a big suspension from the people I'm talking to, mm -hmm. 
I don't expect it. That could move a line a different way. The books have the, the markets have to react. People are going to react. And lines move, I don't want to say in real time every second, but Ben would know better than I, they move fluidly, right? Based on where the action is. And I don't necessarily worry about intentional market moving and benefit. I worry about the, much like the the Tim Donaghy type stuff, all it takes is one or two people in this kind of editorial chain of command to be operating outside the bounds to make some real kind of illicit moves that taints the perception of ESPN of these sports books and big brings regulatory eyes onto it. Uh, to me, that is more likely what's going to happen. It's just one or two completely bad actors. It is not going to be the fact that ESPN and Penn are actually coordinating to hold right. information, leave information. Fox, what is what is size-wise, scale-wise, NFL draft night betting NBA draft betting, because that is not an event-based bet, right? It's not like who's going to win the Steelers or the Packers. That is, I've got information about which team, what what team, which player a team is going to draft. And that's Intel. That is information that I can get before everyone else can get. And I can make a bet on that. That seems like maybe ESPN shouldn't be taking draft night bets or ESPN bet. Should just be like, you know what? We've got too many newsbreakers here uh, on draft night where that is an information bet. Um, we're just not going to take any bets. Is that is that like a huge loss for them if they were to make that editorial decision? Is like, hey, all the other ones, you can take those bets, but we're actually not going to take bets on that night because we employ people who could get that information before everybody else. No, and in fact, I think they'd be happy not to take bets because sports books generally lose every year on the NFL draft and the NBA draft. So it would be a nice reason (laughs) not to be able to have to offer those markets anyway. It's a great point. I mean, the difference with kind of event-based markets, like you said, information markets, is that assuming the information is correct, it will happen, right? Paolo Bancaro, if I know and I can bet on it, I know he's going number one, He's going number one, 100%, right? So it if is an I event. Know, yeah, if yeah. I know Lamar Jackson is injured, well, okay, maybe instead of the Ravens being minus six, they'll be, you know, minus two. They still have to cover the game, right? It's not a 100% chance that that could, the backup quarterback could get injured during the game or whatever. A million things could happen. It's a downpour, whatever. Event-based, like assuming the information's correct, it is 100%. So that's why you see these markets move so much more. And it's why those tweets around events, and especially with NFL draft, more so than NBA draft, uh, just because the NFL is king, that's why they're so valuable. And that's why you've seen kind of the last couple of years more scrutiny, I guess, uh, come across with these. And again, because people have partnerships with sports books. And there's that, I think like Ben was saying, that, perception of impropriety or moving the markets. It's not reality, but there's that perception. And it's the same way when there's a certain, uh, if you own the sports book and you also have media about that sports book, there's always going to be that back of the thought, back of the mind. Are you telling me to bet this team because you like this team? Or are you telling me to bet this team because somebody said, hey, we really need that other side, you know, so push push people towards one thing in general, you don't have that much impact anyway. You're not going to be able to, you know, move enough money, but those are the types of things that are again, taint the kind of perception in the same way, right? We've seen the NFL integrity of the game is number one, anything sports gambling related, they are going to go very hard. Six game suspension, year long suspension, anything that's even coming close, even if it's guys betting on college football, they're just kind of coming down with a hammer because you cannot, you know, taint the perception of the integrity of the game. I think that's the same thing with the sports book and, and media and reporter partnership, right? Is you just can't have anything. That's that looks interesting. Close do to you it. think, do you guys think that they will prevent 
anybody working at ESPN, like where will the cutoff be of being allowed to sports gamble as like an ESPN employee? Like, is it at the writer level? Is it at the editor level? Is it at the production level? Like, cause you guys have information. You're, you're sourcing information in real time that could give you a competitive advantage. Right. And maybe you hadn't been doing that in the past because it hadn't been top of mind. And honestly, sports betting for as big as it is, it's still pe- barely penetrating society. Yeah. So, but I'm curious, where does that, where does that move internal operations? Well, it's, it's interesting, but, uh, Fox, you remember those ESPN chats we used to have where it's like Chad Ford or, uh, insider or chats, yeah. insider chats. I remember so many times that my editor or bosses would get angry when I didn't, I wasn't really in the news breaking business, but they would break news in the chat and not run it up the chain. And some aggregator site would pick it up and be like, oh, so and so is uh, in talks to try to trade for X superstar. And it's in a chat, and the boss would be like, why didn't you just write a news story and then we could own that story instead of like Yahoo or whatever competitor owning that? Like, think about filing that to the news desk before you do it in this little tiny chat. Um, and it reminds me of the fact that like so many of the newsbreakers have information that they don't report. They are sitting on information because they're saving it for an article that they're writing, they're saving it for a larger piece or uh, they're doing it out of a favor for a source or an agent or a GM or a player that they're like, oh, I know X uh, piece of information. I'm just not going to go report it. That's another piece of this this discussion that's interesting to me is a lot of editors or a lot of writers or newsbreakers have information, actionable information that they choose not to report for whatever reason. And perhaps now those that intel, they can act on it in a way that would appear Im- improper. Like if a, if a reporter at college football knew that a quarterback was was injured but didn't want to report it at the time or whatever, I guess possibly that information could get in the wrong hands and then it would blow up and it would look bad on ESPN, right? Just because they have a sports book. They, they are not operating it, they're not running it, but it's ESPN bet. So I, I just... There's there's actionable information swirling all around these editorial departments, these news desks, and now it's just going to have a lot more scrutiny. Uh, Fox, like um, I'm sure you, as an editor, you knew stuff that uh, you talked with your writers or you talked with some of your colleagues that I guess presumably it would it give you a competitive advantage to go bet on the information. But that stuff happens all the time editorially is that you're talking with a newsbreaker and you're like, Hey, I'm hearing this. Oh, that's funny. Cause this other reporter's hearing this. Let's, let's kind of get double sourcing on it. And then we'll, we'll, we'll report it on air. That stuff has always happened in the media business. And now with ESPN opening, you know, ESPN bet, uh, that conflict of interest, whether that scrutiny and those headlines and that radioactivity is warranted or not, I think it's going to tighten the screws a little bit on the newsbreakers at these entities. Yeah, I mean, look, I uh, value my job, which is why when you find out certain things like that, again, you're probably not going to be going and betting $100,000 that you get your hands on on this information, right? There also are many, many layers of integrity monitoring, right? We saw this with the Alabama baseball betting where, you know, the guy was talking, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this story or not, yeah. but basically, you know, talking to the coach. Wasn't he talking coach, on like a speakerphone outside or with, with yeah, a guy yeah. who, was a, I don't know if there was a beard or someone, but his guy is bookie, whatever. Right. Basically Placing told him my starting pitcher isn't starting, so bet on blah, blah, blah. He bet weight, you know, he bet whatever, $10,000, $50,000 on a game that's going to have no handle. Right. So immediately a red flag is going to go up when a guy I don't know bet this giant sum of money. So is it possible that people could bet small amounts of money off this information? Yes. My guess is it would probably in the same way that I, as a DraftKings employee, was not allowed to bet on DraftKings sportsbook full end stop. I would guess there would probably be a similar thing. I don't think there was a betting um, 
anything in the employee manual when I was there, at least, at least pre-2018. I know oh, yeah. there was something installed. Um, and obviously it wasn't legal in Connecticut on a mobile basis. Now it is. I, I would guess it's just going to be a you can't bet on ESPN bet app, period, as an employee, as a, probably as a Disney employee. But can they have a fantasy football team on ESPN? Sure. Yeah. In the skill versus game of chance. But uh, I remember but those I, days. I, yeah. yeah. But I do think there is something interesting, though, is what, what does that mean? Because, again, like a lot of this stuff is perception, right? Like, and if I, all right, I, I will tell you something definitively. When I lived in England, I knew a lot of Premier League players. They were they were acquaintances of mine. They were friends of mine. Gambling on Premier League game by Premier League players all the time. Just all the time. I don't think it has anything to do with changing the outcomes of games in 99.9% of instances. Um. But these people do have inside information. They know the players. They know this stuff. I went to college with a kid who had a relative who played big, big time D1 football and knew a bunch of people. And he would get inside information on who was hurt, who wasn't. And he would get mm. that information. Now, also put in mind, you're right, Fox. Most people are not betting $10,000, $15,000, even when you are certain of the information. Because that amount of money to most people in this country is a, is a ton. Yeah. Right? But, but betting $500 or $1,000 to a lot of people is a lot of money. You know, and while that may not raise red flags, I do think that, you know, there is just an interesting conundrum of like, are they going to just prevent all Disney employees or all ESPN employees from making sports bets at all? Because I do think now... Even if they didn't have the Penn Sportsbook, I just think it's about perception now that they have it. It's like you kind of can trade your own information before you even share it with your editor. You know, like if you feel confident in it, like that's what you're not allowed to do in business and trade it, right? If I work for a company, I mean, right? It's, honestly, a, it's a similar concept. How much? It's it basically really how much do you value your job, and how much are you potentially going to make? on the information that you have that you know you shouldn't be doing that with. And there are always going to be some people that take advantage of that. And I think the majority of people wouldn't just because there are journalistic standards and it also isn't a, a ton of money. But yeah, someone knows someone at a company, they know that's going public. They tell a friend who tells their mom's sister, like, you know, those types of things in the same way in the sports betting world. There's always going to be inside information with injuries. Sometimes you'll see the betting markets move before Schefter or somebody tweets out an injury because someone knows someone on the Titans, you know, injury Training staff, staff yeah. and all those things. So, But the, the, the place it gets interesting, though, is so for, for like 10 years, the big thing with ESPN was they were too woke. Like they're they're just taking up social issues and blah, blah, blah. And whether or not in the immediate effect that had any sort of impact on ratings over time, the stats have shown that like people have felt that ESPN wasn't covering sports enough. And so like there is some correlation to their viewership and some of that opinion. It's, it's, it is data driven as to why ESPN is trying to get quote unquote back to sports more and, and whatever. And all I'm saying is I do think there's an interesting thing around perception if some of this stuff happens and people feel like ESPN. They can't trust ESPN trust. bet because mm -hmm. some yes. newsbreaker got a story wrong and were they in cahoots with whatever. That perception can poison the relationship of the customer with the sports book exactly. in ways that some other sports books you might trust because, hey, th they don't have newsbreakers over there. And all you need is some like crazy conspiracy theorist guy to go on the Joe Rogan podcast and say the three reasons <laughs> why you can't trust ESPN and the mainstream media because of sports betting. takes a life of its own. Right. Yes. And I, uh, believe they, I believe they've said at least 
to start. Um, and I would imagine it's continue to be the case that like newsbreakers won't be on daily wager, right. And gambling specific programming. And there will be kind of that barrier of obviously if they're going on sports center and they're saying a trade or NFL live, that's different, but you're probably not going to see Woj or Schefter pop up on daily wager or a betting podcast or anything like that. Do you, do you think Fox there's any connection to Adrian Wojnarowski deciding this year of all years, I'm not going to tweet the picks anymore. So at last, last month, Adrian Wojnarowski decided after 11 years of like sneering at the NBA and ESPN about, you know, don't, don't tip the picks. We have a broadcast to take care of. Like the, the experience isn't great. It's not a great TV product and it's, it's hurting our business. Last month, he decided, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I thought that was interesting in context of yesterday's news that Adrian Wojnarowski decided after 11 years or 12 years of doing this that he was just going to step aside and let let him focus on the TV. When's that NBA rights deal up again? Uh, next year. Yeah. They're in, I, they're think that's, I think that has a lot more to do with uh, the tweeting <laughs> of the picks than, than a sports book, I would say. <laughs> okay. Uh Fox, thank you so much for joining me, Aronson. Uh, this was awesome. And thanks for joining me on the first foray on the Substack pod. So I appreciate you guys. Anytime, man. Good luck into your independent endeavors, Tom. <laughs> thanks, buddy.